0: Chapter 12, September 1977, age 22. Though things were going well for Robert and he was making a lot of money, he still had the murder charge lingering over him. He stayed in and out of court for a couple of years, dealing with not only the murder at Broadcaster's Inn, but also for the murder of the big guy several years back in the illegal possession of a weapon charge. During that time, he was arrested on unrelated charges, but never spent more than one night in jail. For a cool $12,000, Nikki and Lenny had attained the services of a lawyer named Maurice Brill, who handled all three of Robert's cases. He assured Robert that he would see little, if any, prison time. Yet, as Maurice began working on the case, he realized the situation was more difficult than at first it seemed. The DA had labeled Robert as a bad apple and wanted to put him away for a long time. With this in mind, Maurice believed it was in Robert's best interest to work out a plea bargain for all three charges. He finally got the DA to agree to 10 years, which at that time meant Robert would probably serve eight years in a state penitentiary. Maurice encouraged him to take the plea, and Robert really considered it, knowing that a lost trial could send him away for at least 25 years, if not for the rest of his life. Still, he wanted to talk to his family about it and see if they agreed with him. A slightly annoyed assistant DA told him that he either made the deal now or it was off. This angered Robert. It was his life at stake here, not anyone else's. He cursed the prosecutor and told him he would see him in court. Maurice wasn't too happy with Robert's outburst, but he never said anything to him about it. He started working on the weapons charge since Robert was caught red-handed with the gun. Not long before the trial, an agreement was made on the weapons charge, one to three years, but it was understood that nothing could be done about it until the two murder cases were done. The murder case at Broadcaster's Inn would be the most difficult to beat, according to Maurice. Five witnesses swore that Robert walked up to the guy and shot him while he was on the floor. Robert thought that since he was innocent, he shouldn't have anything to worry about, but Maurice's confidence was not equal to Robert's. As Robert sat next to Maurice at the defendant's table, dressed in a suit with a tie, his hands sweated as they waited for the judge to enter the courtroom. He pulled at his shirt collar. The door to the judge's chamber opened. A tall, clean-shaven black man with small, wire-rimmed glasses moved quickly through the doorway, floating in a sea of rippling black silk. All rise, the bailiff said. Honorable Kenneth Brown presiding. You may be seated, the bailiff said after the judge took his seat. Court is now in session. Roberts had worked his way out from inside his buttoned-up jacket. He tucked it in as he sat back down in the uncomfortable wooden chair. For the first time, he looked over toward the 12 men and women who would be deciding his fate. They were all focused on the judge who was running through procedural jargon with them. He turned his attention to the back when he heard one of the large doors leading into the courtroom open and some low-level rustling. He saw his mother in one of her two church outfits leading a tardy entourage that included his father, sister Anna, and his girlfriend Phyllis. Behind them was Michael Cotillo a longtime friend who recently went to work for Lenny after his business went belly up. The trial started with the opening statements. The assistant DA claimed that Robert started the brawl and that while the victim was down on the floor of the club's foyer, he walked over to him, pulled out his gun, and shot him in the head. The man was full of indignation, as if it was his own brother that had been killed. He pointed his finger at Robert several times. It was all Robert could do to keep himself from jumping over the table and breaking it. Apparently, Maurice sensed the tension and discreetly placed his hand on Robert's arm. After enduring the false accusations for a good 10 minutes, Maurice stood before the jurors and began his discourse. He told the jurors how the fight started when one of the decedent's friends injured a young lady and how Robert was defending her honor outside when someone else shot the decedent in the foyer. Over the next two days, the prosecutor called each of the five witnesses against Robert. Robert found out, They were all friends of the victims as the assistant DA began questioning them. If all were strung together, it would have appeared each of the witnesses' stories corroborated the stories of the other four. After the testimony of the first witness, Robert wished he had taken the plea bargain. When Maurice began the cross-examination, he meticulously went through the witness's account, having him restate his location prior to and at the time of the incident what type of gun Robert was holding, where he was in relation to the body, and so forth. As before, his story was the same. Robert began to wonder whose side Maurice was working for. But then he did something that threw a wrench in the prosecution's case. He asked the witness what Robert did after supposedly shooting the victim, and the witness stammered over his answer. Over the first two days of the trial, as Maurice cross-examined each of the five witnesses, Each one of them had a different answer regarding Robert's actions after his gun went off. A chink in the prosecution's armor-clad case was found. On the morning of the third day, Maurice called the club's doorman, Jake, who testified that Robert was outside fighting someone else when the gunshot occurred. He then called several expert witnesses who testified that, according to the coroner's report and forensic evidence, the victim was shot standing up and from the front, not the back, as the witnesses said. Also, the weapon used to kill the victim was a nine millimeter, which flew in the face of the witness's testimony that Robert was carrying a revolver. On the fifth day, the jury went in for deliberation while Robert and Maurice waited in the bullpen. While sitting on the bench, the bailiff came in. The jury has asked for a portion of the testimony, he told Maurice. Thought you'd like to know. Thanks, George, Maurice said. As the bailiff left, Maurice buried his mouth into his right hand and covered his stomach with the left. He looked as if he were about to vomit. Robert turned to face Maurice. What's wrong? Maurice shook his head without saying a word. Need some water? "Tom's A doctor? Again, he shook his head. Then tell me what's going on. Maurice sat up. Usually, if they ask to review testimony, it's been my experience that they're about to return a guilty verdict. Robert shot up. But I'm innocent. Robert, sit back down. Maurice said as he tugged on his sleeve, and keep your voice down. When the bailiff returned soon after to inform them that the jury was back after only two and a half hours of deliberation, Maurice's disposition lightened. Back in the courtroom, Robert's stomach flipped when the judge asked him to stand for the reading of the verdict. Maurice stood with him. As the jury foreman's voice became obscured among Robert's thoughts, he couldn't help but think about how a good portion of his life, if not all of it, was going to be spent in a penitentiary. For Robert, that meant no more scotch on the rocks at his favorite clubs, no more girls, no more partying until he felt like going home. It meant no more Aunt Rosie's pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving or laughing at an inebriated Uncle Barry dressed as Santa Claus trying to get the right present to the right child. It meant no more of his mother's home-cooked meals, especially her Italian meatballs and pasta. The remainder of his birthdays would amount to perhaps a card or two in the mail. His status as an up-and-coming star among his mafia associates would be yanked out from under him, since jailbirds are nothing but consumers, words of the state. From what he understood, doing time in prison was nothing like doing time in jail. The prison was for hardened criminals, the type who had no problem sticking someone with a shank just because he wouldn't give up his mashed potatoes at chow time. The truth be known, there wasn't a lot of separation between Robert's way of thinking and that, so he knew he could handle it. Yet it was not the way of life he wished to live, nor the place. He was young, and there were still things he wanted to do, and places to see, like Vegas. That was a city that sounded like a perfect fit for him. Lots of money to be made, plenty of women to be had, partying all day and all night, living by his own rules. He knew Sin City was where he belonged. Yet none of it would happen once the jury foreman read the verdict. Not guilty. Robert heard the words, saw Maurice's smile and felt the pats on his back, but its meaning didn't sink in immediately. The judge called his name. You are free to go after you sign some papers and process out. About an hour later, Robert floated across the street to a restaurant with Phyllis hanging off of his arm and his family close behind. They found a large booth in a corner where they could celebrate with a little privacy. Michael Cotillo, who was sitting next to Robert's father, was the first to say something about the trial. So what were you thinking when they came back so soon with the verdict? I tell you, I thought I was a goner, Robert said. After the waiter took their order, his mother said, You know, you got some good friends that helped you out, thank God. She crossed herself. Your father and I are very relieved. I pray to God every day to send his angels to watch over you. Yeah, Robert looked at his father. As he toyed with his fork, his smile was slight, but Robert knew what it meant. Even though trouble was so prevalent in his life and caused his mother a lot of heartache, he knew his father enjoyed the credibility given to him by his bar pals because of his son. For his father, it was sort of a badge of honor to have raised such a tough kid, one that was important enough that some of the most powerful men in New York went to a lot of effort to assure his son walked out of that courtroom a free man. His father looked up, and Robert mirrored his grin. His mother continued, You've sown your wild oats. You need to think about settling down, starting your own family. She smiled at Phyllis, who turned her eyes toward the menu. Robert grinned. Oh, come on, Ma. When they left the restaurant that day, all Robert could think about was getting back to Nicky and Lenny and soaking up the notoriety he had earned for beating the case. Eventually, the DA dropped the murder charges against Robert and Little Joe for the killing of the big guy. Since the incident occurred many years ago and the DEA wasn't able to produce witnesses. Robert was sentenced to one to three years for possession of an illegal weapon, but was released on an appeal bond. About a year and a half later, his lawyer Maurice notified him that the case was dropped due to the fact that an illegal search was performed on the car. His relationship with Phyllis didn't work out so well. She broke up with him not long after the trial. He was devastated at her decision. Unfortunately, there would be no settling down for Robert, for a very long time.